Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. time for episode 27 of the imbalanced history of rock and roll on the pantheon podcast network i'm ray koo i'm marcus in the darkest and this time we're going to talk to one of the great masters of metal music john zizula my old pal johnny z talking about his new book and as always the imbalanced history of rock and roll is brought to you by our good friends at crooked eye brewery pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014 Now let's get to the phone and talk to the man. On the phone and joining us from his palatial estate in Florida, it is our old friend, my old friend, John Zazula. He has a book called Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, as lived by John Zazula. And you know, John... That's pretty much it yeah. in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, really? Yes, yes. That's my life in a four-and-a-half-hour read. That's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, everybody. That's my life. It's all true, and it's all crazy, and it's all unbelievable, if you want to know the truth. I'm here with my partner in crime here on The Imbalance History, Marcus in the Darkest, and I know he's got a bunch of questions for you, and I do as well. I want to let people know, though, the book's coming out on Halloween, how appropriate, a hardcover release on 10-31-19. Pretty excited to see what's all in the deep crevices here in your book, Johnny. Great. It's uh, there's some surprises in there, sure. We got a chance to read some of your book, and we really enjoyed what we got to read. It's only about Good. 200 pages long. You have certainly lived more than a 1,000 pages worth of metal music and madness from the flea market days to now. How much did you cut out? Was it hard to edit the book? And does this mean that we're going to get a second book from Johnny Z? I have to say this. There's only two or three stories that I remember that didn't make the book. I mean, I could have spent time, people said, talking about Luca's departure from Anthrax. I could have talked about Bobby Gustafson leaving Overkill. I could have talked about a lot of things. Right. But I, the, book, the book is about me. It's about the people who worked at Megaforce besides me. My wife, 40 years, my partner, and how she worked and made things happen as much as I did. You know, it's that kind of a book. And I didn't want to tell every little story because, to tell you the truth, it may be fun. It may be boring. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it sounds like you're going to have at least one or two more books that you're going to have to write because now that you've let people in a little bit to, into who you are, I think the stories that you probably had left over in those other pages that Marcus was talking about would be great to hear those stories. It would be, especially uh, two stories that stood out amazingly that I didn't go into. I, I just, I blew it. I actually, I wasn't going to go back after one point, one year and six months and start writing in new stuff i just couldn't do it i didn't have it in me and the people i gave the book to liked it the way it was they wish they could have gotten a little more you know but maybe there will be a volume two if people like volume one i hope that they like it because i love what i was reading and even though i've known you and marcia and the whole megaforce gang for forever i was learning all kinds of things 
you two, you and Marsha, you're one of the best, strongest couples I know. And everything that I felt about that before is only underlined by a lot of the stories that you tell in the story. Now, at the start, I got to ask you, because this was one of those things that made me go, what? At the start, once you started, uh, you, you met Marsha, then you, you actually called her. How did things come together for you two as a couple and you become such great partners in metal? Well, that's true completely different stories and they're both covered in the book but I came together with Marsha the first time and I'll tell you the truth I kidnapped her for three days <laughs> you gotta read it in the book it's a great story that story is fantastic that one letter out of my sight and when she got out of my sight and she went to work came home on Monday I was there with my brother already moving her into my house and she went <laughs> and know? she's been there ever since John <laughs> <laughs> never left my side i never left her side where it's terrible how symbiotic this relationship is and even through those tough times you had earlier in in your life when you uh when you ended up in the halfway house after uh getting caught up in all that metal trading stuff that's in the book too the way that marcia would help you to get through that the way you guys stuck together even when ricky was a little baby it it speaks to the to the the power that you two have together and and give her a hug and a kiss for me when you see her after this call please that's not hard to do, Ray. <laughs> I'll tell her. She'll be very happy because she likes you. She's one of my faves. You know that. All right. You know, I want to ask you about, I want to talk a little bit about No Life to Leather and those days in your life. Oh. When Tell us about how, when you heard that demo, how you felt and what you, what you were thinking, what was going through your head. Well, at first, I didn't want to listen to the demo. I didn't play demos in my record shop mm-hmm. unless I heard them first and it approved of them. And then I'd first play them for the audience, the people who shopped in my store, who I called the audience and my customers. And I'm turning them on to new metal. And when I played it, because the guy was really up my ass. To <laughs> play this on my broken speakers in my little got for free found in the flea market stereo. Right. Sound comes through the speakers, and I said, "Holy f!" Oh, John, is... Johnny, Johnny, we we say fuck all the time on this podcast. Don't worry, we'll don't hold it. back. But I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so you say what the f? And and I said. This is amazing. The first thing I heard right away was that this was America's answer to the new wave of British heavy metal. I knew that right away. As it went on, I said, this is better than the new wave of British heavy metal. Why? And as it went on, I said, this is better than everything I've even heard. Better than Motorhead, man. This is killer. Sick. Why was it better? Why did you feel that? Well, first of all, I didn't know it then, but it seems that I've had all my life really good musical taste with the bands I listened to and how mature and educated my ears were. He's right. And when I heard this, I knew for sure this was really special. So special. Special that I said to Marsha, I have to have something to do with this band. I don't know what it is. Maybe they'll do some shows for me in New York because I had 12 shows at that time lined up with, with no support. Uh-huh. And I said, this would be great to bring this band over and give them a shot at these shows. I mean, it was Twisted Sister, it was The Rods, it was Venom, you know, it was Vandenberg. Right. It was great. Shows is that the, lined up is that, the, is that the period where they came and lived at your house before moving to the fun house and all that? The period they lived in my house before moving to the horrible situation and then to the fun oh, house. Oh, that's right. Yes. So you were, you were up close and personal the way few managers or label guys would be, I would say. Well, you know, I take on a mentor attitude and vibe, you know, 
like a guru vibe. And I do always remember that the band makes the final decision. It's the band that has to agree and come up with the concept. I don't rule. I could just suggest or be a devil's advocate. And I was very close, uh, I think, to all my bands while we were doing things together. Well, I know it felt that way when we first started encountering each other in the 80s. That's how it felt. It felt like it was a megaforce crazed family, you know? Yeah. And if you worked for us, you worked in Never Never Land. <laughs> you know, you never grew up in Megaforce. We were all 19 years old forever. I'm blown away by how you took a chance with Metallica the way you did because of what they were doing. It was so different from what everybody else was doing. That San Francisco thrash scene was starting to develop and evolve. And here you are on the East Coast going, man, fuck, I want to give these cats a chance. And then you also have a young Scotty Ian and his band Anthrax showing up at your flea market, at your record store, giving you demos. And then, you know, things move for them from there. With Metallica, were you nervous? Were you str- were you stressed about taking the big risk with a band like Metallica that nobody knew at so that time too. and that was so different and they were west coast no because i believe they were so great that anybody who saw them will get addicted to them immediately you weren't wrong they, were, they, could, <laughs> they could pull off their demo live on stage they will win everybody and what was great was that the people who went to the first show went to the second show went to the third show went to the fourth show Wow. Finally, we played the Rio Theater in Long Island, 500 seats. It was packed, and they played the best show of their life without flaws. Oh, wow. They were young at that time, so there was a naivete to their sound. How were you able to get past that youthful naivete to sort of take them to the next level? I didn't take them to the next level. Their music was their music, you know? It spoke for itself. You know, I'd like to take credit for things, but, you know, they have a lot to do with it, too. And uh, their music was... To me, just perfection. You know, it was it was the greatest thing I've ever heard since Led Zeppelin, you know? I know wow. what you mean, man. You, you mentioned Overkill, and uh, that brings up my, my dear friend and uh, one of the guys that bonded me to you guys at Megaforce, Bobby Ellsworth, Bobby the Blitz. Uh, oh, yeah. How did you hook up with him and Gustafson and Dee Dee and those guys and get Overkill into the Megaforce family? Well, Overkill, like Anthrax, used to show up all the time at Rock and Roll Heaven. Overkill, unlike Anthrax, I had really good demos that I sold at Rock and Roll Heaven, while the Anthrax demos I turned down. And when Overkill made their EP on a label called Azra, because I said they're not ready for Megaforce, it really impressed me. That they went and did it anyway, right? They said, okay, we'll we'll find our way to get the music out to the point where they did impress you. They did impress me, and they had, see, I was counting the good songs on the demos. Mm Mm-hmm. I was waiting for like 10 of them to pop up. Or when it got six or seven, I said, we're on the right track. We should really think about an album. And again, the Azure record came out. They said they had a lot more in the closet. It sounded really good to me. And I said, you know what? You're good enough for Megaforce. Let's do this, guys. And, and I'm no really glad you did. I'm glad, you, you know, I'm glad you did because when I started doing my metal show on MMR, I was hit by the Megaforce and Crazed Army with all the music and all the stuff as things were coming out. And it was a really great time to be working with you guys and yeah. but Blitz and I even through uh, when Bobby uh, Gustafson left the band and all that all through that time Blitz and I stayed so close and I love the guys I just love his his crazed spirit man <laughs> oh yeah Blitz is a sweetheart he's a great great guy great friend fun to know Dee's fun too if he lightens up oh yeah. I've, I've had hang time with him too yeah you know they're good boys 
I remember when uh, they were playing the Empire Rock Club in Philly, and uh, they got there was a place held uh, 200, 300 people, and they had like 500 in there. Fire marshal showed up. So the next time they move them to the truck, right, John? And somebody yeah. sets off the fire sprinklers while they're on stage. Three months later, they dry the place out. Blitz comes back, walks out to start the show in the Gorton's Fisherman outfit, the full slicker, and go, all right, motherfuckers, let's go. <laughs> I missed that part. But that was fun. Was there a lot of camaraderie amongst the Megaforce bands back in those days? Not at all. No? Rivalry? They they all wanted individual attention. They all thought they were a little better than the next one. And they all didn't understand why certain bands excelled and they didn't. Right. And it caused stress. That's the truth. Interesting. A lot of rivalry. I can understand the competitive nature. It's a competitive business, but if you look at labels like uh, Motown and some of the other uh, scenes where they were competitive with each other, there was still camaraderie. So I'm surprised that you well, said there that there was not as much camaraderie. Metallica and Anthrax. Mm-hmm. They were huge friends. But I think Testament, Overkill were in their own game. Even though they wanted to be friendly, they weren't really, in those days, Tight. part of the gang. Yeah. Everybody wanted to excel, as I said, and they just thought the other bands were eh, and I should not be wasting my time with them. <laughs> yeah. With Anthrax, you said that you rejected them a bunch before you accepted them. You didn't dig their demos very much. What was the turning point for them as a band in your eyes? What did they do differently, and how did they change that made you say, I'll give them a shot? Their demos matured into the Soldiers of Metal, what became the 45 produced by Ross Abort. And it became clear to me that with direction and focus, they could really get it together as a band that would be a, uh, what's the word, a uh, a contender. Contender! (laughs) A contender! Hey, Johnny, I got a question that came out of one of your stories in the book, the night of the big show uh, with them and uh, Raven and Metallica, you know, the infamous night at Roseland, right? And right. Ne- and Neil walks out after Anthrax is set. Neil just walks out and away. How long did it take him to find it was Joey next, right? Well, Joey took a while. I think I can't remember the period, but I think it may be six months. But I know that that yeah. was like a, a tough night for you because that was the night when all the stuff was going on with Electra and Q Prime and all that. And then to have that happen. But anytime something like that happens in your story, Johnny, you seem to rise above it, overcome it, and just keep pushing on. It's your personal mental strength it amazes me after reading. I, I got to read about half to two thirds of the book and I'm like, I didn't know all these things about my buddy. Yeah, well, it was very painful losing Metallica and it was basically still the fact that I had the responsibility to break Raven and Anthrax. So I, I said, you know what? Let me, instead of crying over spilt milk, let me open up another dairy, you know? <laughs> and basically, I put a lot of attention into Anthrax, which paid off. A lot of effort into Raven, which paid off prior to Atlantic. And everything I was touching was really starting to heat up and look great. Merciful Fate was a big success. Manowar was a big success. Just everything was happening for us. And that basically kept me busy enough not to sit around and mope about the past. You're listening to The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll with me, Ray Coob. And Marcus in the Darkest. And our guest, Johnny Zazula, talking about his new book, which comes out October 31st, Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, as lived by John Zazula. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is sponsored by our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, 
located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hatboro, PA. When you stop by, you become part of the gang from your first visit. It's really like a family thing, Marcus. You get to meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started by home brewing with their chief brewer, Jeff Mulherin, who's one Paul's son and the other one's nephew. Serving nightly in the heart of Hatboro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014, and I think that's a great saying. I love that saying. They have fresh original ales that make you come back for more. And, and you Hazy have Eye favorites. is back. He yeah. brought back Hazy Eye. So get in there and check it out before it's all gone. But there's always a full board. Lots of fun, fresh brews there at Crooked Eye. But there's more to Crooked Eye than just the brews. Check their website, crookedeyebrewery.com, for a full list of music events and other fun scheduled each month. Check out their website, crookedeyebrewery.com, for a full list of music events and other fun. Always something fun. Scheduled each month. So Final night in October. Always something happening, Ray Coop's final night included. Great brews, great people, and fun times. It's a full board of the fresh brews that you love right there at Crooked Eye Brewery. Next time you want a true craft brewery experience, stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. We're back with Johnny Zazula here on the podcast, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's a little off kilter, John, so I think you can identify. So many things in your life, the major things that happened in your story, just seem to click into place. You know, we've talked about some of it, including finding the name, because you were going to call it, what? Uh, Vigilante. Vigilante, which I love the idea of that, because you're going to do it yourself, just like people took care of Vigilante Justice, right? Right, that's but, exactly correct. Now, wasn't it a movie poster that the word Megaforce kind of jumped at you? Well, I was down on Times Square and 42nd Street, and they had a double feature. They used to have double and triple feature down there when there were little movie right. theaters up and there it was the vigilante but above it in big bold letters was megaforce the movie mm. and i megaforce that's unbelievable that's an unstoppable force so we went and we called the company megaforce and then the symbols of the two hands at the end of the megaforce yeah is sign language for the unstoppable force I read that. I love that. I, when I read that in the book, and I was like, wow, I never, I'm learning so much, Johnny, from your book, but I never knew okay. that. And to find that out, it just, again, does it feels a little like divine providence, maybe? Dude, the whole story is divine providence. I know you keep mentioning that in your book, and 
One of the things that I found very interesting is how you were able to weave your personal issues with depression into the story and be candid and frank about it. And you went through that phase, that concert where Q Prime and Metallica and all of that happened. And then uh, the lead singer of Anthrax quit. But yet you stayed strong and moved on. How did you fight your depression during that time? Did it impact you? How were you able to shelve that during some of these times? Because you described the ups and the downs very well. Well, there's a time in depression when you have a swing, either depressed bipolar or you bipolar swing to the right. Now, the left is creative. It's manic. It's an overwhelming drive to perform, perform, perform. But you always have pulling at you. This depression, this darkness. And I felt as long as I could stay busy, as long as I could keep winning, I will avoid going into a pit of depression. So I fought my depression by winning, winning, winning until I could win no more. And when I got hit, I got hit so hard. Uh, that was actually really? my next question. When Because you avoided it for so long, when it hit you, did you feel like you were being run over by a freight train? Well, I lost interest in everything more than that. I just didn't care anymore. A lot of people experience that with depression, I think. Yeah, I just didn't care anymore. You know, I worked with Warren Haynes at Polygram, and we had a great album. And the album sold 36000 and everybody's telling me it's a failure, it's a failure, it's a failure. But... You know, they weren't working the radio or anything. I had songs like Fire in the Kitchen and whatever they were. I don't remember them all. But I do. I was working at MMR doing the metal show because I was tight with uh, Missy and Jessica. They sent me everything. And there was the effort was being made towards that area, you know, towards like working it towards the core support area. And the funny thing is, is that you signing Warren and seeing in him all that he's become, John, not only does it put him on the map, but it also, for me, me and, and I thank you has created a lifelong friend here. Uh, I've I've been st stayed in touch with Warren through all the years and all the things he does and his newer music. I think delivers on the promise of what you heard thirty years ago. Oh yeah, Warren wrote music that was beautiful. That song "I'll Be the One," you know. Yeah. Oh my God, great, great songs. And at the time, he was writing also for Garth Brooks. You know, that's not top liver. He was playing spot. <laughs> the Allman Brothers. It was a good pick. It was, it was a really good pick. And then the Disco Biscuit. Well, that's a whole other kettle of fish that you got yourself into. I, I love your immersion in the jam band thing. I really love it because there's some things there, John, that were similar to what you did with metal in the 80s. The same kind of, you know, finding the right groove, finding a way to click and making it work. Well, I did that. I did that with the Disco Biscuit. Yeah, that's I what I'm saying. There were six people in the audience when I started, and there was Camp Fisco the day I left. <laughs> That's wow. hilarious. Wow. And they just got signed to a major agency as I'm leaving. And the reason I left was because I felt there was, I was getting too much involved with them emotionally. And my mind kept on saying, you don't want to go down the hard way. And we renegotiated my contract and I just said to them, you know what? I'm not going to do this. And I just walked away from the table. They didn't offer me goodbye. They just wanted to negotiate with me. And I basically said to them that I, I can't do this. And I walked away, and I'm so proud of them and where they've gone. You know, they could be the biggest band in the world if they ever wanted to, but they don't want to. They're having fun doing what they like. They're having fun raising their families, doing what they want. That's right. Great yeah. bunch of guys. And Billy, Pennsylvania boys. Yes, sir. Well, they play around here. So anyway, uh, 
My ears were good all the way through, but it got to the point where I just didn't care anymore. And that plays into the depression uh, sometimes, right? You don't want to swing yeah, the I other got, way. I just wanted out of Megaforce. Right. I wanted Missy to take over, run the company the way it was run, have fun with it, make a lot of money. Didn't even care. I have closed the door and I've not looked I'm looking at, uh, we mentioned Missy, I mentioned Jessica, and of course Maria Ferrero, uh, who you still are associated with, with her work at Adrenaline. She set up this interview. At what point in the program, John, did you look and realize that WSOU had become an ultimate ally in a lot of ways? Once WSOU had Missy, Palazzo, right, became the metal radio station. Girl now, awesome. I was expecting to go metal and not have a great deal to do with it, right? Uh, <laughs> you well, know? you know, and that's when they, they became integrated into the culture, and it was a natural that she would end up working with you guys. For people who don't know, WSOU is a student-run station at Seton Hall University in, uh, in New Jersey, and this radio station helped to feed everything you were working on with the Old Bridge Militia and the shows at the flea market and then the bigger shows in the shows in New York City. SOU really helped. I know DHA was really key too. And Ed Trunk, who I want to talk to you about, was also involved in helping that whole scene get pumped up and right. filled with the music. Speaking of Ed, he brought into Megaforce one of my favorite crazy humans, Ace Frehley, who I became friends oh, with around that time, uh, around the time of the Trouble Walking album. Oh, yeah. Tell well, us about Ed's involvement in all this. Ed basically came came to me with Ace, and he sold me on Ace, and I just had to say to him, just let me know that Ace is in good shape and ready to go. And we met with Ace, certainly was, and the great legendary producer, Eddie Kramer, vouched for Ace, and when we met Ace, he was spectacular. He was great. He was brilliant. And there was no way we weren't going to work with him on at Megaforce Records. And uh, the first album did exceedingly well, and the other albums, unfortunately, did not, and my interest and Atlantic's interest and Ace interest. We all faded at the end. I don't remember why we all departed. I, don't, I can't remember. Maybe Ed would remember. Hey, Johnny, I want to ask you, um, one of the things that happened, you built this uh, Megaforce up to a critical mass, and you started making deals uh, for the label with Atlantic, and of course, Island and Anthrax uh, were associated. How did all that come right. together? When did, when did that all come to a head, and how did you make all that happen? Well, when important records, important distribution, my first distributor, and company. I wanted a place to go to where the bands as managers can manage some of these bands. Bands could go on and have the money behind it for radio, for touring, for videos. Whoa! Things that I couldn't provide anymore because I just didn't have the money. And Island, even though they busted my ass on spreading the disease, were really there on Among the Living in a big way and persistence of time in a major way. So the move to Island was good. Move to Atlantic. I sort of botched up. You read in the book, I had some real big blowouts with the company over standing up for violence and putting my neck out and getting it wrung out. Then I go to them with a classical music label, Mega Forte, put out the classical rendition of Bruce Springsteen songs. I mean, I was out of my friggin' mind. <laughs> but you admit it. But at least you admit it, Johnny. Hey, batshit crazy. <laughs> but as crazy as I was, brought King's X to the table. Tell us about that, how you found them since they weren't really from around here, so to speak. And uh, and tell us some good, a couple good stories about working with King's X. 
Well, there's a few, but they were signed on a fluke. Marsha got a set tape from Annette Taylor, and we had worked with a band called Fire Choir trying to get them signed from the South, from Memphis. And we thought that Steve Taylor just sent us a new demo of his new project. But when we listened to it, it didn't sound anything like Steve Taylor. But Marsha liked it and made a phone call. It was the manager of King's X, Sam Taylor. Oh, wow. So she came up to me and said, never mind. But she kept driving around with that cassette in her car, listening to the songs like Shot of Love, and came to me and said, Johnny, this group is amazing. Really got to listen to this. And I did. And I said, very good. But I don't think anybody's going to understand it. I was getting frustrated with trying to tell people what they should like and listen to. And finally, I saw the video that they self-produced on an oil field, oil rig in Houston. I loved it. It all made sense to me. And we signed the band to Atlantic Megaforce. Now, while we represented the band, we did have a number two track at radio. We did reach 200,000 in sales plus. It may not sound like a lot, but it was really an achievement for a band for us at that time. And we got them on the world tour for AC, with ACDC. Got them in front of a so, lot of faces. That sure did. You know, we did a lot. And when we left Atlantic, we had to leave our bands behind. So the bands we left was basically Testament over Killing King's X. Well, let's talk about your brother, Chuck Billy. You guys have been, have been close. He wrote the foreword for your book. And he's one of my favorite humans, especially in the metal world. Amazing um, guy. And all, well, the whole band, they just I, I just clicked with them early on. John, do you remember that they once played for us in the Philadelphia area? They played a, a free concert in somebody's backyard. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, Missy and Jess set that one up. It was awesome. And they couldn't have been nicer, you know, because the music is so heavy and gruff. Sometimes people forget that the people involved can be warm, wonderful humans. And that's a big dude, too. He is he huge dude so a huge man. how'd you hook up with those guys Mel Maria Ferrero from our office besides being the head of press also shared in the A&R duties of the company mm-hmm. it was up my ass with this particular legacy they were called time cassette demo I thought it was really great but it sounded too much like Metallica for me I just didn't want to do it again that's what I hated about every record company out there too everybody's regurgitating the past nothing was new and what happened was they got Chuck Billy in the band. And they redid the demo with Chuck Billy singing. And I really took an interest. And then Maria convinced me to go to Oakland and see them live in the studio and make a judgment then. So I went to see Testament at their Oakland studio and fell in love with them. It hit me like a lightning bolt how great they were and how wonderful Chuck was and how amazing was the guitar players. Yeah. Everybody was rocking. So we ended up signing Testament and we signed them on the same day that our friend Cliff died. I was going to ask you about that, but you know, I mean, it was one of the darkest moments in thrash metal history because they were really rolling there. Yes. And to lose Cliff in such a tragic accident. Where are you? I know you guys weren't working together then. Where were you and how did you find out about all that when it happened? Well, you have to realize that Anthrax were on tour with Metallica in Europe. So we were right behind them on the road. No, I did not know that. Oh, Jesus. Not right behind them, but we were driving. You know, we were both going to the same place in the same route. And my partner, uh, Tony Insegiri, called. I was in the West Coast waiting to go see Testament. It was three in the morning. And he called me and he gave me the news. I thought he was bullshitting me, but it was true. 
And Marsha and I got out of bed, and we just got dressed, and we walked on the pier in San Francisco for hours and hours. I remember we broke day, and we just walked and cried, you know? I was with Cliff the day before, or the day of, right in London. He was buying a dynamite ring. So out of the ring he got at the Bullfrog on Carnaby Street. And we hung out, and he left to go on tour. I went to America, and that was the last time I saw Cliff. I know it's a long time, John, but I can hear it and feel it in your voice. And I'm sorry for your loss, because everybody who well, knew him said he was an amazing guy. Everybody that knew Cliff mourns Cliff. He was that guy. Can I talk about something um, a little more cheerful? Sure. I know that you got to do what I dreamed of when I was a kid. You were you're, you're a few years older than me, so what was it like seeing Cream in their original form and period? I got to see the reunion show that they did at Madison Square Garden, but what was that like for you when you were the age that you were when you saw it, and how much do you think that they influenced rock in a heavier direction towards what became metal? Yeah. It's a great question. It's funny. I just listened to Fresh Cream the other day, and then I played Tales of Brave Ulysses uh, alongside it because I love that song so. Me too. But NSU and I Feel Free, you know, these are like amazing songs. Mm -hmm. And the cream you saw was like going to see Kiss Without Makeup. What was that? The cream I saw was Kiss a lot too, you know? It was like Kiss so Without in. Makeup. Oh, okay. You saw an old bunch of guys playing on their morals. The amps were regular amps. They weren't a wall of marshals pounding at you. <laughs> Film or PA system or the Murray. De I saw them first at a Murray Decay show at the RKO book at the uh, at an RKO theater on 58th Street. I stole out of the school and I went down there with some friends and we went to see the Rascals, but the cream were on the bill. Nice. I Baker in an orange Snoopy sweatshirt playing the drums, and he blew my mind so much that I traveled all over trying to find that sweatshirt for myself till I found it. Someone located it, and I went to Terrytown, New York, from the Bronx to buy that sweatshirt. Wow. Wow. They were so heavy that my balls vibrated. And I <laughs> my Do you consider them the first heavy metal band without the label? The first super heavy band? No, I. I don't know who came first, them or Blue Cheer. Okay. But they're both in that same era, though, right? Yeah, this is in that same era. The MC5 were, like, really in there early, you know? Right. But uh, Cream were the British sales team for the Marshall. Jimmy <laughs> Hendrix was sales team for the Marshall. You know, the Marshall amp is what revolutionized sound of what came off the stage and heavy. And I think Black Sabbath really took it to the next level. Not musicianship-wise, but those... That early Black Sabbath album was uh, too much for words. What about Deep Purple in the early days? Well, Deep Purple to me were a rock band, you know, hard rock. I never considered them heavy metal at all. You know, like Gates of Babylon is a heavy song for Rainbow. But uh, I don't know. Smoke on the Water, is that a heavy metal song? Uh, I would say no. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> we're talking about heavy music in a band that wasn't quite in the pocket is Ministry. What was it like for you working with Al Jorgensen and seeing them develop Ministry to the point where they became a major label player? Well, it was an honor to work with Al. He's quite a quite a genius, quite a madman, and so am I. <laughs> so crazy. I can only and imagine. And Paul Barker was always grounded in that scene. And Maria was there too. And I just watched it happen. We went to Warner Sire. President of Warner Sire even said to me, John, if you could last six months, I'll give you $50,000. Just 
work with us as a label. I turned down his money, and I lasted five years. And in that time, we did Psalm 69. We did uh, what albums that we did. Did you do uh, Land of Phil, Rape and Honey? Well, Land of Rape and Honey comes before me. I came right after that. Phil Sprague's mind. My era, not my album. My time without. But Psalm 69 was like the real breakthrough record that everybody just was blown away with. Like, there's nothing heavier than just one fix. You know, it's just a riff from hell. Oh, absolutely. And it's crazy how Ministry's sound changed because in like 1984, they played the New Trier High School senior prom with songs like Work for Love and some of that real cheesy 80 synth pop. Yeah, they weren't proud of it, but that's what they did then. <laughs> but then that transitioned and he got pissed off and their sound changed. Yeah. Yeah. Third SOD. Yep. And fell in love with the guitar sound and then took it all to the next level. And that he did. I got to see them live quite a few times. Me too. In the late 80s, early 90s. Always a pleasure. Just a punishing oh. show. I, I left yes. exhausted. I left exhausted after being in those pits. They were just, they yeah. wore you out with the heaviness. And it was oh, yeah. unbelievable. Ministry, ministry pound on you. Oh, yeah. Just pounded on you. Who was the most intelligent musician you ever came across in your years at Megaforce Records? Well, at Megaforce, probably Scott Ian. I thought he really had a pulse on everything. And, and right alongside him was Lars Ulrich. I feel as a manager, though Al Jorgensen was the genius of geniuses. I'm wondering, Johnny, at this stage in your life, how do you frame all this? You overcame so much adversity. You created a management and a record label and all those things. And then you, you, all these different things and different things you've uh, kind of brought along and fed to grow. When you stop and think about it now, and now that you've written the book, how do you frame it all? You frame it all that that's what you did when you grew up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the story, Jerry. You know, um... That I basically never gave anything much thought. It's very hard to walk around thinking you discovered Metallica and executive produced their first album right. and put out their second album on your label and did all the things you did with Anthrax and Man of War and Merciful Fate. Unbelievable. And the book is full of stories. And what's crazy is the discography in the back. Sometimes there's seven or nine classic albums being put out in a year by three or four people. That was the period of time when I was like catching on to you guys, and then when I started doing the radio show, I was like all caught up in all that, and the flow really was incredible for what was still, in our mind as uh, metalers at that stage, we were thinking of you guys as one of the main forces in metal, and really on the bigger scale, you guys were still uh, a small label doing big things every day. Right. We lived, we did big giant things. We cast a giant shadow. That's a good way to put it, John. We cast a giant shadow, and we created the soundtrack of your youth and the rest of your life, too. Johnny, I have one more question. Uh, in an earlier podcast, we did an episode to explore the history of the name heavy metal. Do you think things would be where they were if heavy metal had a different term or name than heavy metal? Do you think you'd still be where you are if it had a different name than heavy metal? <laughs> I think it would have been called aggressive music, heavy music, powerhouse music. You know, it would have been named something else, but it would be the same. You think it would still have the same lifestyle, love, and that same passion, that same culture that yeah. heavy metal itself created? 
Yeah, if it didn't say heavy metal, it'd be heavy something else. As long as there's a crazy SOB named John Zazula in the mix, it was going to be crazy, right, my man? It was going to happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> His book is out on Halloween, October 31st, 2019. It is Heavy Tales, the metal, the music, the madness, as lived by John Zazula and Marsha Zazula, by the way. We should we should got to give her proper love and credit in there, buddy. And can I say something, guys? I'm not putting the book in stores. It's only available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's online, or my website, johnzazula.com. That's John without an H. J-O-N-Z-A-Z-U-L-A dot com. Go there and buy it. And that's what a lot of people are doing now, John. They are because I'm autographing them on the website and signing them to the people. So it's a really good way to get the book and I get to get personal with you a little bit. (laughs) Well, we can't thank you enough uh, for your time today talking about some metal history. It's one of the subjects that we feel like we know something about, but it's always great to learn more about any aspect of rock and roll history. And thank you so much, man. I love you, Johnny. Yeah, thank you very much, Johnny. I love you, too, and nice meeting you, Marcus. Nice to meet you, too. Look forward to more from you in the future. All right. Ray, take care, my man. You, too, Johnny. What a mind-blowing conversation we just had with Johnny Z. Oh, my goodness, you have to read the book. The book tells more. Ray, I'm just sitting here going, whoa. That was a little too much like Beavis and Butthead, brother. <laughs> But I tell you, it was a fun episode, and uh, there is so much more in the book. I mean, we only got to talk to Johnny for a little bit, and even knowing him for a long time personally didn't really help us because there's so much more, so much more to the story than I knew, and there's even more that I haven't read yet, so I can't wait to go and finish the book. And uh, just so cool to have him with us here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Hey, we really have to thank a couple people who really helped us to get to sit down with Johnny, don't we, Marcus? Yes, we do. A couple of people who have been good to us, not only for this, but over the last decade plus. Oh, in my couple case, years, decades. Couple decades for I've you. I've known both of these ladies. Yeah. Uh, at Adrenaline PR, we have to thank Maria Ferrero and Paula Hogan for helping to put this interview with John Cizula together because uh, they made all the schedules and things work, and he's a very busy guy these days which is unusual because he's been so laid back down there in florida he's been so retired fishing on the uh, water just hanging out enjoying life and maria is also a character in this episode as you heard and i saw paula the other night good to talk and work with both of you ladies again here on the podcast yes and thank you again maria for the 15 years that you have helped me with interviews press and all of that stuff much appreciated. We'd love to hear from you about any topic regarding the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Any feedback is always, always welcome. Reach out, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can go to our website, imbalancedhistory.com. You can also find us on Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. On Twitter, Imbalanced Histo, minus the RY because Twitter doesn't have enough space. Give us the RY, Twitter. You can do it. And you can also find us on the Pantheon Rock and Roll Podcast Network. Add that to one of your favorites and check out the other cool podcasts on Pantheon. Well, that's going to do it, Marcus. What a fun time with John Zazula. Check out his book. Do the Google thing and find out about the book. And it's coming out on October 31st. Well, we're going to wrap it up from here. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And as always, we'll catch you next time right here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.